Welcome back to the Warehouse Podcast. I'm Tyler. I'm Jesse. And I'm Eli. And guys, there is just so much sports going on today. There's all, all the sporting the sports. Wimbledon final, Euro final, NBA finals. But we're going to talk America. Well, I mean, because who cares about that? That was last <laughs> night, technically. Yeah, that's true. Okay. okay. Well, yeah. Well, we're recording, in case people are listening to this later, we're recording this on Sunday, July 11th, after the Orioles have made their first pick in the draft, the MLB draft, which is the biggest event today. I think we can all agree. Of course. Like the Euros, whatever. Right. Wimbledon, (laughs) you know, traditional tennis tournament, the draft. Right. Right. See, the Euro Cup and Wimbledon have two things going against them. A, they're not our sport, and B, they're in a whole other continent. (laughs) So it's like, we're not worried about that. The NBA is basketball. It is basketball. Not worried about that. <laughs> it, yeah, I, I just the MLB draft is what's left in front of us, and you know, honorable mention to the MLB futures game. True, true. I mean, basketball kind of is America's thing, but the U.S. team just lost to Nigeria last night, so that, that might be that's slipping pretty away. shocking. <laughs> it is pretty shocking. Um, but we are a baseball podcast, so, you know, all those other sports be damned. We will talk a little baseball. Um, and, you know, I think I should preface all of this MLB draft talk by saying that we are not scouting experts. We read the <laughs> we read the scouting reports just like you do. We watch the videos. We have our own opinions on these guys as we watch them, of course. But everything we say, take with a little bit of a grain of salt. Listen to the, the experts out there for the real opinions. But we're kind of going to give you our Orioles fan centric opinion on the pick tonight um so there had been talk i'll give a little run up here there had been talk in the past couple days that the orioles were kind of eyeballing high school shortstop khalil watson with the number five pick i think um esp not espn but uh mlb pipeline and the athletic i think and maybe baseball america had some mock drafts come out that all had khalil watson going to the o's at five which you know a lot of people were excited about he was a projected, you know, top four pick that the Orioles would have gotten at five, but the Orioles did not go that way. They went sort of with what was being talked about a couple of weeks ago and went with a college outfielder, Colton Kouser from Sam Houston State. It's expected to maybe be an underslot deal, but Eli, maybe I'll go to you first because I don't know how you're feeling about this pick, but what was your initial reaction when you saw that Kouser was the pick? Uh, it, it It's right in line with what, I expected the Orioles to do like, you know, when we talk about the Orioles, we talk about the money conscious, we talk about all this stuff. We saw Heston Kerstad last year. And unless the Orioles have a truly defined, you know, this is the correct pick like they had with Adley Rutschman. It makes sense with where we are, what we're doing to build the system that we would take a player who can take a little bit under slot, who still has some pretty, dynamic tools is still a super exciting player and we can work and you know like we saw with Kobe Mayo and Carter Baumler last year you can get a couple guys who you have to give them more money in the later rounds of the draft and that's what we're doing I think Kowser you know people have talked about him as potentially the second best offensive weapon in the draft coming out of college that is mm-hmm. uh, he's you know, a lefty swinger, they say he's more of a hitter than a power guy, but the power, they expect him to fill out a little bit. And yeah, I, I mean, at, you know, as he has grown up, people say he's progressed very, very consistently. You know, he started out as a corner outfielder. He's now a center fielder. 
if you look at his offensive numbers across his three years of college, this last year was by and far, you know, the most incredible year he's had. It was, I mean, he obviously made a name for himself enough to be taken at number five in this year's draft. So I think it's a good pick. I think the Orioles are setting themselves up to spread some money, maybe take a couple of reaches and like the five through seven rounds, you know, guys who pretty much would honor a commitment to a college rather than going out of high school, but we might be able to pry them away with, you know, a seven figure deal or something like that. So I like the pick. I think the Orioles are doing what the Orioles are, you know, have been doing and it's been working so far. So I trust it. Yeah. I mean, Kowser has been kind of the name that that's been attached to the Orioles for a bit as sort of an underslot option, just to give you guys and Jess, I'll get your opinion in, in just a sec. Cause I know you've got thoughts as well, just to give everybody kind of an idea of where Kowser falls in the pecking order here. You know, this is all very subjective, but uh, fan graphs lists the top prospects. They've got Kowser as the number six prospect in this draft ahead of Kumar rocker, ahead of Jackson Job, ahead of Brady house. They like him probably the most out of all these boards that you look at. Um, then there's MLB Pipeline. They've got him at 10th, and they've got him behind Brady House, behind Jackson Joe, behind Kumar Rocker. You know, I think sort of what is sort of up in the air is what position he plays. If you don't like him as much, you probably think he's a corner outfielder and he needs to add a little power. If you like him, you think he's a center fielder who has enough power for the position, actually maybe better power than average for the position. Um, you know, and, and I like the pick as well, Jesse, we talked a couple of weeks ago about, you know, specifically the, the under slot strategy, which, you know, it remains to be seen if Kowser is under slot, you know, he hasn't signed his deal yet. Maybe he's not under slot, but if it is an under slot deal, you know, all things considered, do you like the Kowser pick as well, Jesse? Right. Um, so overall, I like the idea of going big on the number one pick. And it doesn't feel to me like the Orioles chose to do that. Um, if Kowser was who they liked overall, best overall, uh, then I'm definitely cool with the decision. And if they can save a little money in the process to sign uh, later draft picks, that's fine with me. My main thing is that uh, I want the I want this guy to be the guy that the Orioles wanted the most uh, out of all the guys that were still available. So if that's what happened, then I'm fine with it. Uh, but if if they wanted to sign a third round pick or a second round pick and took a guy they liked a little even just a little bit less in the first round in order to try to do that, then I think we're in dicier territory and I'm not as as big a fan uh, of that idea. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the other thing I think worth noting is, um, especially with uh, Watson still being available uh, and even uh, Lawler was available um, at, at that point in the draft. And, and House to uh, another high school shortstop. Uh, right. Right, exactly. And shortstop is very much a question position for us. Um, we are not sure that this organization has uh, the Orioles future shortstop. Um, so it would have been nice to have maybe potentially addressed that need. Um, of course, you know, these are high schools, uh, high school seniors. Um, so you, you never know what the needs are going to be in the future. Uh, maybe Gunnar Henderson does stick at shortstop long term, even though that looks unlikely. Um, 
maybe Joey Ortiz does pan out and, you know, he could play shortstop for several years for the Orioles. Um, all of those are possibilities, but we don't have an Adley Rutschman shortstop uh, in the organization right now uh, who is basically a shoe in uh, more or less to be the, the shortstop of the future. So it would have been nice if the Orioles had maybe addressed that. Um, obviously nothing is guaranteed ever, right? Um, that's understood. Uh, but it might have been nice to see uh, the Orioles pick somebody who uh, at such a critical position would have had a very good shot or a legitimate chance to be the shortstop of the future. So that's the one thing I think about. Uh, uh, and that that's uh, another critique I have of the pick. But um, and that's another angle about how I think about it from. But I'm 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 not saying the Orioles definitively did the wrong thing here. I'm not saying that. And what I what I'll say about the draft class is again basing this off of what sort of experts have said, and then maybe even sort of based off the evidence of where these players are going in the draft is that there's not really a consensus top even three players in this draft. Marcelo Meyer for a long time was mocked to the Pirates at number one. He ended up going fourth with the Red Sox. He was the top shortstop taken. Then you've got Lawler at six, uh, um, House at 11, Watson at 16. There's definitely some disagreement on what the ability of those high school shortstops is. So, yeah, it'd be awesome to have that Adley Rutschman type of prospect at the shortstop position in the organization. I'm just not so sure based off of what other people are saying that that prospect was even available in this draft. Um so it sounds like what the Orioles kind of did was they they did exactly what we've sort of learned Michael Elias will do is he went a little bit safer while still having a high enough ceiling. Apparently, there are models that the Orioles put these players numbers through and Kouser is in some of those models, the second best offensive player in this draft behind only Louisville catcher Henry Davis, who was already gone. So in that regard, the Orioles might have gotten the best hitter available to them. And if that's the case, I'm not so sure this guy's going to be an underslot pick. Um, so that that changes the math a little bit, too. But yeah, one yeah. kind of interesting thing about that is one one thing I noticed is that when the Orioles went for this underslot, quote unquote, with Kerstad, you had somebody who was essentially the consensus top power handed lefty bat in the draft. And then with Kouser, you're going with somebody who is also a consensus, you know, like who has a good guy. floor. Yeah, who has yeah. a good floor. And so you're picking tools that translate well, that are already pretty developed because they've both been college outfielders, both already established. And I think that should, you know, I think that should be mentioned. I, they obviously are probably going to take lower deals but at the same time, they are well-established prospects. So it, as Jesse was saying, there are two schools of thought because if you, if you are of the mindset that only 50% of first-rounders ever make it, then you should spread out your draft pool and you should go for quantity. But at the same time, once you leave that first round, I, I don't know the numbers on the second round, but I'm sure it's below 25%. I'm sure mm. you know, it just keeps going down and down and down after that. So you have to hit on your first pick is basically mm -hmm. the logic on the other side of it. And with these guys, if you are not taking the best available player, 
you run the risk of not hitting on that first pick. And that is a legitimate risk. And that's what Orioles t- Twitter is probably screaming about <laughs> right now on our phones. And I understand that. But at the same time, knowing that it is only 50% in that first round, spread out your draft capital, acquire as many quality prospects as you can, and you have a better shot at hitting on any one of them. You know, somebody who's a fifth rounder might have third or second round talent, might have comp round talent. So it's, yeah. a, it's a difficult game to play. Clearly Elias and co are of the mindset that you need to be economical at all times and make the most of your money and do X, Y, Z. And they think that the bonus, the signing bonus that Kouser is going to get relative to the quality of player he is, is a better value than what somebody like a Khalil Watson would get given how good of a player he is. Right. And I mean, you know, none of us have ever been part of an MLB front office. You know, none of us know exactly what goes into this, but what you do know just from hearing people talk is that this is all very subjective and you can kind of tell that just from going and looking at a, a, a draft or a, you know, a prospect board from fan graphs or MLB pipeline. And you'll see a guy that's like ranked 30th, being picked seventh overall, like the, the the high school pitcher Frank Mazzucato was with the Royals at number seven. Like, you know, there's no obvious answer here. You hope the Orioles went into the draft with a plan. And I think based off of information or based off of just watching what Michael Elias does, Michael Elias is going to do, <laughs> excuse me, Michael Elias is going to do stuff the way that Michael Elias plans to do it. He's not really uh, too influenced by outside, um, you know, things at hand. He's got his plan. He sticks to it. And for worse or for better, that's how it's going to go. And, you know, I can't really hate on that unless we don't see it turn into success at the major league level. Um, so, you know, I, I've kind of said on Twitter a couple of times, I sort of like, I've liked the connection to Kouser for a long time because I like the idea that he can play all three outfield positions. Even if he's not a center fielder full-time, he probably can play the position. He probably rises pretty fast. He's probably here, not next year, but potentially the year after, if we have full minor league season in 2022, as, as I would imagine we will, like, you know, there's a lot to like there versus a high schooler that is going to be in the minors for three or four years. And then even then might be a flop. Um, so, no, I mean, I like the pick. I know a lot of people won't, but I, I can't hate on it. Um, that said, you know, looking at who was available at five, was there another player maybe you would have liked to have taken Kumar rockers, like the obvious name that I think kind of jumps out. You're shaking your head. Yes. Eli, would you have rather them taken Kumar rocker? I'm not sure. Rather. (laughs) (laughs) It's a difficult thing because I think that to me, you know, kind of the knock on rocker was that it was partially about uh, conditioning. You know, they thought his fastball was fading a little bit. It was partially about, oh, he's a little bit wilder, but he has the single best out pitch in the entire draft with that slider. There were a couple different knocks, but to me, just getting somebody who is a fully filled out body with the power fastball, power slider, and really what's a pretty good changeup uh, in that final game where Vandy lost. Uh, who were they playing? Ole Miss. Mississippi Ole Miss. State. Mississippi, Mississippi State, State. Thank yeah. you. Uh, where they were playing Mississippi State, you know, he – he actually used his changeup more than his slider. And I was pretty impressed by that. And that kind of got me thinking like, well, you look at what the Orioles have been able to do with power arms in our system. And that's just kind of tantalizing to me. But at the same time, uh, I think that rocker probably would have been a full slot value. Uh, he was projected in the top, you know, six, seven picks of pretty much every draft. 
He's a consensus stud. And I think that the Orioles trying to be economical, they've probably got their eyes on a couple guys that are going to come in the early rounds tomorrow that they will be able to sign away with the money that they're going to save. And mm-hmm. so, you know, for me as the fan, the gut reaction, yeah, I wanted the big power arm out of Vandy. You know, the story all year since he threw his no hitter last year in the super regionals, the story's been Kumar Rocker, Jack Leiter, what's going to happen. And mm-hmm. so your eyes light up at that. But at the same time, I think that probably the less flashy move is always the right one. You know, the Orioles were not blinded by the allure of Kamar Rocker, of his name, of the connection with Jack Leiter and the Vandy boys slogan and everything. And so I think that means they probably made the right decision. Okay, Jesse, you were seeming to agree with with what Eli was saying up until he said they made the right selection. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I, I guess my thing about it is, I mean, yeah, from a fan's perspective, Kumar Rocker definitely would have been the exciting dynamic pick, right? Um, You know, I've seen a lot of Kumar Rocker's highlights. Like you were saying, I mean, tantalizing is like the perfect word for him because he does have that wipeout slider. He does have the power arm. He is like a big guy when he's on the mound. He's, you know, like everything that you could kind of want in a pick in a pitcher. Um, so yeah, I mean, he's, he was definitely kind of the exciting pick. Um, and like Eli was saying, what our farm system so far has been able to do with these power arms, what they've been able to do with Grayson Rodriguez, um, among others, uh, that's an exciting prospect. And it seems like it might be a good combination. The Orioles minor league system with Kumar rocker paired together could be a really good combination. Um, so that definitely would have been the exciting pick. Uh, we would have hoped to have seen him in the major leagues pretty soon. Uh, you know, not too far away, probably a similar uh, timeline to Kowser. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, again, I don't think it's uh, necessarily the, the right or the wrong thing to do, but I, it definitely would have been a more exciting pick. I mean, this is a guy that, is potentially, I mean, he, who knows, you know, but, uh, 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 rocker is a potential all-star, you know, potential Cy Young award winner. We have no idea, but, Mm -hmm. um, all those things definitely seem at least to me within his reach. Um, and maybe those are for Kowser too. Uh, I'm not sure, but it, it seems like Kowser is kind of a, a, uh, a lower ceiling type pick to me. Yeah, it could be. I mean, what I will say about not taking rocker is that that is also consistent with sort of what Mike Elias has done. Mike Elias has kind of shown that he believes that you can take a player and turn them into, you know, a, a greater than the sum of their parts type of thing. Whereas with rocker, what you just kind of said, what you guys mentioned, he's six, five, he's 250 pounds. He's almost 22 years old. Like, that's a maxed out guy that if he, I mean, he's got great stuff now and I bet you, you could put him in a major league rotation tomorrow and he'd be like a number four. And then you just work with him and he might be more than that. But if you're Mike Elias looking at what he's got to work with, there's probably not a whole lot of projection in Kumar rocker. And I know that's kind of like just the scout speak or whatever, but it does kind of line up with sort of what Mike Elias has, has thought, which is he can build an arm and he can sort of draft a bat high and just sort of let it let it develop normally. And 
you know, that's not, not too surprising. So I'm sure we'll see the Orioles maybe take a high school pitcher just like they did with Carter Balmer last year later and throw some cash at them and hope to develop them. But yeah, the Kuma Rocker pick is, or the option to pick Kuma Rocker definitely stands out a little bit, but I'm not really surprised that they didn't uh, go that route. One thing just I want to th- – hold on real quick, Jess. One thing I want to throw about, about Rocker is that this was mentioned by somebody on the draft uh, broadcast. I don't quite remember which guy said it, but he said he thinks that a lot of the narrative around Rocker, scouts are suffering from scouting fatigue is what he mm. called it. Mm. And it's almost that Rocker as a freshman – it was in 2019, but he threw that no-hitter in the Super Regional – he was so undeniably dominant. And then they watched him for part of last spring before COVID, and they've been watching him all year this year. And he had already gotten everyone so excited that it's impossible to like raise expectations from that point and raise your scouting reports. And so as people looked at him more, they just kept picking holes where they weren't necessarily. And I think that's a pretty good argument because as I mean, as a fan my thoughts of Rocker had kind of transitioned with that. I had started thinking he was less refined than he might've really (laughs) been, you know, all this stuff that gradually over time, I think scouts sort of started straying away from the narrative just because they couldn't keep saying the same thing over and over again. Um, So that was one interesting point about Rocker and the fact that he'd been such a high profile prospect for so long, I think definitely impacted kind of views around him as this draft was approaching. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think it could, you know, there could be uh, some trying to outsmart people a little bit with, with like, Oh no, Rocker, he's a maxed out guy. I don't need to spend 5 million on that. I can turn this third round pick into what Kumar Rocker is or something like that. There, whereas like, you know, just take the guy. He's been really good at the highest level of amateur right. baseball that there is, the SEC in college. He's going to probably be pretty good in the majors. Maybe he's not a 10-time Cy Young winner or whatever crazy ceiling we were dreaming about two years ago, but <laughs> he's probably going to be pretty good. Jess, did you have something else you wanted to add there? I, I mean, I was just thinking kind of in line with what Eli said, but the Orioles, it is fair to note, weren't the only people that passed on, wasn't right. the only team that passed yeah, Rock, on, on Rocker. So he Rocker fell, fell all the way to 10. Right. All the way to 10. And then I've seen some on Twitter saying that, so the Mets, the Mets, the Mets took him uh, in case people weren't aware of that. And the slot value for that pick is $4.7 million. And there's people already saying he's probably going to get more than that. So that becomes a consideration too, as he starts falling is, can a team now afford him given the money they're allowed to spend? I don't think that would have been a problem for the Orioles. I think at five, he probably would have gotten like the slot value, which the Orioles slot value at five is 6.1, almost $6.2 million for Kouser. Um, But yeah, I mean, the Mets, I think it's, he's going to a good situation too with the Mets. The Mets have shown an ability to not fix, but like really work with some pitchers in recent years. So I'm, I'm excited for rocker. I think he'll be really good. And, also, I'm excited that he's not in the American League and we can Definitely. admire him from afar. <laughs> <laughs> the Oriole uh, hitters won't have to deal with him for for the most of the time. Exactly. Unless, you know, the Mets are right. trying to make some playoff push and they trade him to the Rays or, nope. or something. Nope. <laughs> right. For, for, I don't know, Tyler Glasnow three years from now or something. Please, please don't. <laughs> or do if that. we like. 
have to end up seeing him in the World Series or something. Yeah, that well, that bad. that's a good problem to have. We'll, yeah. we'll deal right. with that. Yeah. <laughs> we, we are so right. far away from it that it's not even yeah. worth mentioning. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Um, so, yeah, that, that's just the Orioles' first pick. Uh, drafts, uh, the draft continues on Monday and Tuesday. There are 20 rounds this year. The Orioles have almost $12 million to spend. And as I just mentioned, that, that uh, slot value, that first pick, makes up almost half of it at $6.18 million. Um, so keep an eye out for that. They also have three more picks before um, uh, they have picks 41, 65, and 76. So keep an eye on that. And we'll probably talk on that um, next week. We're not going to have another show this week. Uh, so keep an eye out for that. Um, okay. Any other draft talk before we move on to all-star weekend talk? No. Do it. All right. So in all-star news, we haven't had an episode since Cedric Mullins officially got named to the all-star team. That's not really super surprising, but he didn't get named. It's not super surprising given how he's played this year, um, but he was not named as a starter just yet. Um, do you guys think he will be a starter? Now, by the time this comes out, maybe he is a starter, but that has not been announced just yet. Um, do you think there's any argument for him to not be a starter in this game, Jesse? No, no. Okay. Keep it Not simple. Really. Yeah. <laughs> no. I'm. go ahead. E. I was going to say there was no argument for him to not be voted a starter by the fans. That's right. Fair. They voted him Mike Trout, right. who is hurt, which makes right. no sense. I mean, he's been hurt for like half the season at this point. They voted in Teoscar Hernandez, who, you know, is having yeah. a good season, all respect to Hernandez, but he just <laughs> has not been as good in any way, shape or form as Mullins has. It, and and Byron Buxton got voted in. He's been hurt half the year. He's, right. His numbers have been crazy when he plays, but he's been hurt half the year. It, it's this right. it's this ridiculous, ridiculous popularity contest. I mean, there's it, there's no rhyme or reason to it. This year, Blue Jays fans showed out, mm-hmm. and I get that because the Blue Jays have been good, you know. So they voted Vladdy, they voted Bobachet in, they voted Semyon in, they voted Teoscar Hernandez in. And that's all lovely. It's like the Royals. When the Royals won the World Series that year, they had like seven starters. (laughs) You know, Omar Infante almost started and he was like one of the worst second basemen in the league. Right. It it just makes no sense. You know, (laughs) Javier Baez was one of the finalists for NL shortstop. And the dude is like hitting 220 this year. I mean, he's been outright awful. Right. And I'm I'm so tired of popularity contests when this dude, Cedric Mullins, has been tearing up the entire game of baseball. Uh, Hyde actually said it best. He said, in pretty much every game, when there hasn't been a Shohei Otani or a Vlad Guerrero Jr. on the field, Cedric Mullins has been the best player on the field in every game that we've played this year. And it's just unequivocally true. He's been incredible. And he should have been a starter from the get-go. And that's all I have to say. Eli is heated up on this part. Fire it up, boys. Fire it up. At the risk of getting yelled at by Eli, though, I will say once it went to the final vote, I started voting Mullins along with Trout and Buxton because I wanted Mullins to start (laughs) and voting for Trout and Buxton was basically voting for Mullins like three times. Right. But, but I wasn't going to vote for him until the final vote, but then once it was there, you know, I need him to shoot up the the rankings a little bit. Well, your efforts were (laughs) in the interest of Cedric Mullins in the end. So I will allow it. And he, and apparently he was the top voted player in the player vote, like with the, when the players right. vote. So that right, kind of because shows they're you. watching the game and not just voting for whoever's on their team. Right, right, exactly. Well, and you're also allowed to vote like 50 times or whatever. It's right. you know, it's you a lot. Spam the button. <laughs> At one point, what they, else? 
Right. I'm sorry. Last thing. Go ahead, At e. one point, yeah. they had the San Diego Padres and the Toronto Blue Jays like mm. teamed up to like cross promote. They were like the the hashtag was vote Pod Jays, yeah. and that was infuriating. It's like you guys have nothing to do with each other. You're promoting. I don't know. Just pissed me. Half off. the Padres roster is like former Orioles. I mean, they could have they could have thrown us <laughs> a bone. You're right. You're right. Jesse, you want to get in here? Yeah, I guess what I was saying, or I guess kind of Eli's point, uh, what he's saying underneath all of his uh, anger here is that <laughs> what it really is, is that it's not based on any sort of merit. I mean, it's not based on any sort of ability or performance that these guys have demonstrated. I mean, yeah, I mean, if we want to look at the Orioles, Cal Ripken was starting in the All-Star game like several years after he was any good and, and deserving of being in the all-star game. So, I mean, it, it, well, it's a, that's a little bit different. Hold on, hold on. I'm not just going to let you slander the iron man like that. That's a little bit different <laughs> not, because he was like in his last year and I, I don't know. And you know, on his way out, that, that was a, like, th- that was a farewell tour, which is a very, very right. different thing. And I think is valid. Okay. This is like okay. on the regular just everyday guys who got 10 years left in the league getting voted in when they don't deserve it. That's all. Right. I, I will say that some people do. I've seen online, like there's an argument of, well, they've got to be good for a couple of years before they become really like eligible to be voted as starters. Like people do think that way. I, mean, I don't agree right. with that thinking, but there's that thought out there. Stupid. Right. Well, I, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I guess my thing is, and I think there's some merit to that actually, Tyler, because having uh the all-star game halfway through the year rather than at the end of the year i I mean you in baseball someone can put a couple of couple good months together and be out over performing and Mm -hmm. you know who knows that that could happen um but uh i guess my thing is yeah i mean it's not based on 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 merit yeah i don't like the idea of guys who are injured uh being elected being uh voted on um, it makes no sense to me why people can vote 50 times. I feel like, yeah, one, one vote per email, you know, I think I feel like it's sufficient. I don't know. Um, but I guess my other thing about the whole process is that, well, I, I guess the one thing I will say is like, when you go to the games normally, uh, in a non COVID years, they pass out the ballots. So of course, you know, people, there's no fair equitable way while people are doing that to to have a legitimate all-star voting uh but um yeah so i guess what's frustrating to me my thing is i am more happy that mullins made the all-star game more than i'm angry that he is not a starter what i feel like the being the starter is kind of it it's not that important to me. I feel like you make the all-star team, you make the all-star team. Hopefully you get an appearance. If you don't make it in the game, yeah, that sucks. And, you know, that's really unfortunate. And if that happened to Mullins, then I'd be very upset. But uh, he's an all-star. Yeah, You know, I feel like you make the all-star game, you make the all-star game, and there's not a, a higher class really for being an all-star game starter. Maybe if you're the starting totally pitcher. I totally disagree with that. Maybe if you're the starting pitcher, I see that a little more. But I don't think being an all-star starter is necessarily the biggest deal in the world. And 
I feel I feel bad for Mullins because he does deserve to be starting the All Star game, and he's not. So I feel bad for him in that respect. But well, he made well, hold the All Star. You 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 just said that he deserves to be the starter. He does. Which, like w- right, but that in itself, like creates a you know, a different designation for what the starter is, which is going against your point, right? The starter, who that starter is, well, is supposed I, to be I, the best player at that position from that league. I, and that's what Cedric just, Mullins is. Correct. I just mean he deserves it in, in that sense. It's it's not contradicting my point. He, he does deserve it because, like you're saying, he is the best at his position. And by but extension, you, you, he deserves You were saying it. there's nothing that special about being the starter. And if he's been performing like the best in the league, he should get respected as the best in the league. I mean, he's he's just dominating all center fielders in all other categories. I think... I, yeah, I, I yeah, agree and I, know, I know you know that yeah. part, but I'm just saying, you know, if we... If, if you're saying he deserves it, and he deserves it based on XYZ... It's something that is to be deserved because it does have a special designation as this is the best player at this position from our league. This is the cream of the crop. It rose to the mm-hmm. top. And this is who right. we are putting forward. And right. Like and, people, and, and people because of that, I think there is something special about it. And I think he deserves it. Yeah. So that's why I'm upset. Right. And people looking at the lineup card, you know, they see the lineup card and when they turn the game on at the beginning of the game and seeing his name there. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't matter at all, and it, it is disappointing. It would be great to have him starting center field. Like, that would be awesome. Don't get me wrong. Um, but, yeah. I mean, what I'll say about the All-Star voting thing is, like, the, the All-Star game is, at the end of the day, kind of just like a marketing thing for baseball in the middle of the summer. So you want the players to play that fans care about the most. And at this point in his career, does Cedric Mullins, is he a draw for fans in general of baseball, not just Orioles fans? Not probably yet. So I kind of get it, but it doesn't mean it's right. I'm sure that they could do something to overhaul the voting a little bit. Maybe like, maybe the players pick like the top 10 people at each position that are eligible to be voted for. So you can't, stuff the ballot box to the extent that some guy hitting 220 with a 280 on base percentage is even going to get a chance to start. But then I would imagine what we'd see from that is there's also probably some popularity contests within the players too. Like Javier Baez could still maybe be in the top 10 because he's Javier Baez, you know? Um, I don't know. I, I think I understand where you're coming from though. Cedric Mullins is a guy who's beaten the odds to be where he is in his career and he deserves the recognition to be, a, an all-star starter because I do think there are are levels there. Um, so to to contradict your point, <laughs> I'm just on a war path tonight. Excuse me. Um, <laughs> no, but like you, you know, when you say that Cedric Mullins is not necessarily the guy who would draw the most fans for who we could plug into center field, I think that is nothing more than an indictment of the MLB's marketing. Right. Mm-hmm. This is a dude who pretty much outright sucked as a hitter, and he has totally refined his game, totally switched up. He's now he's now like too old to be a prospect anymore. This was pretty much his last shot in the MLB, and he's come out and been one of the best performers in the league. So I think that's an incredible marketing story. It's a great draw for a lot of fans. You know, he's a black dude, and people have been talking about the MLB not quite doing as well in black communities recently. I, I think I think it's a wonderful, wonderful way. For the MLB to market, and 
I think if they're not doing it, that's their fault and not mm-hmm. any fault of Cedric Mullins. That's fair. And the other the other thing that I would add to that too is that I mean, if anybody has seen Cedric Mullins play they would be interested in having him be the starting center fielder. Right. right. So the only reason that is because he hasn't, you know, like people, people are slow to catching on to how good he is. Right. Um, because if anybody has watched him, anybody would want him to be out there playing and to, to show what he's capable of. Right. Because he is like, we've been talking about, he is the best center fielder in baseball right now. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, that's what I would say to that is that, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, the fans, if the fans, uh, know anything about baseball, they should want him to be out, there, uh, starting. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, baseball and we could, we could go round and round about this all day. Baseball more than probably any other high level professional sport is very localized though, you know, because there's so many games, they're all on at very much the same time. You know, over 90% of the baseball games I watch are Orioles games. And the Orioles are not the most fun team in, in the league to watch. But it might because, be the least fun. Right, right. Minus Cedric Mullins. Like, they might be the least fun team to watch. But they're my local team. They're on all the time, and I'm going to watch them. And that's the same to be said for Cardinals fans or Mariners fans or Astros fans. Like, you're just going to watch your team. And sort of back to what we said a, a couple minutes ago, like why Cal Ripken got in year after year when he wasn't really good anymore is because you just know who he is. People don't know who Cedric Mullins is yet, so he doesn't get voted in. It's not right. It's just the reality. And hopefully, you know, maybe this is now the lag time has kicked in. MLB can kind of kick up their marketing initiative with a guy like Cedric Mullins. Uh, and he gets voted in 10 more times if he's good enough all that time. So hopefully I think he'll be the starter um, because with two guys coming out, in Buxton and Trout, I think there's there's no feasible way he's not starting this game. I, I would not understand that at all. So Eli can rage all over again next week if he ends up not starting. Yeah. Well that <laughs> that would be even that would be a truer and more profound rage than this was because uh, th- this is subdued by the fact that he's probably gonna start anyways, despite mm-hmm. the disrespect. So <laughs> I think he'll get what he has subdued coming. rage. I hope <laughs> this hope is subdued. Caught that, yeah, yeah. I'd, so, I'd be blowing out speakers and people's headphones and cars. <laughs> they'd be, yeah. We get the expletive label on uh, Apple or whatever. <laughs> right. Adult content, um, right? All right. The other action going on, actually, before the All Star Game, is going to be the Home Run Derby, and the Orioles will again have some representation there. Trey Mancini is going to compete uh, for the American League. He will be facing off against the athletics, Matt Olson in the first round, it's eight competitors this year. Um, so I don't, I mean, this is kind of a cool thing. Cause I think at the beginning of the year, even if you had said like, yeah, Trey Mancini will be involved in the all-star festivities in some way. I don't know if we would have said he would have been in the home run derby. Um, so Eli, were you kind of surprised that Trey Mancini got picked to be in the home run derby? I wasn't really, I think what this is, and I hate to, put it in a box and paint it into this corner. But I think what this is, is that Trey had kind of cooled down. He wasn't going to make the team, mm-hmm. make the all-star team in general. And MLB wanted him to be a part of these festivities. They wanted to celebrate him. They wanted to honor, you know, his fight through cancer. And as we were talking about marketing, they want to market it a little bit, you know, and that's not a bad thing. You know, I think Trey undoubtedly should get his due 
Uh, he is the ultimate competitor. He fought his way back from some incredible stuff. And I'm really, really glad to see him here. That being said, Matt Olson is a tough draw on the first <laughs> round. That's just, <laughs> I mean, Matt Olson rakes. <laughs> yeah. And, and Jesse, you were saying just before we started that Olson kind of has like a swing for this sort of a competition. Oh, it's perfect. I mean, he's a lefty <laughs> with a massive uppercut that lifts the ball uh, in the air. Um, and the thing about Mancini is he's like too much of a line drive hitter, which right. in Major League Baseball is great. You, uh, you want line drive hitters, but for the home run derby, you want a Jim Edmonds type swing or a, a, a Matt Olson type swing. So Joey Gallo. Uh, yeah, that'd right. Be fun. Jo- Joey Gallo or even like a Cano type. Um, so he won it a few years ago. So, um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it definitely, like Eli said, it's, it's good that, um, I mean, the thing is, this is really, you know, we talk about him being an all-star and it was disappointing last year when Mancini was not, or two years ago when Mancini was not an Mm all-star. But the thing I'll say is he, he really is a bat, right? I mean, this is what his skill set is. So I don't even think this is like really a bad thing. This is kind of like recognizing him in the way that he really deserves to be recognized. Right. He's a power hitter and, um, he's going to be in the home run derby because he's an effective power hitter in the major leagues right now. Um, so I think that's a good thing. He's not a very good fielder. So it's not like <laughs> we're right, going to be right. like, Oh, <laughs> all right, yeah, oh he's up, tear this guy down. Well, I, 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 I'm just saying like, I'm not going to miss him like defensively at first right, base, right, right. like in an all-star game, you know, <laughs> I'm going to be able to see him mash and hit home runs. And um, I, I think he'll hit a few, I, like we're all saying Olsen is a really tough draw, but if he just holds his own, uh, even if he goes out in the first round, if he knocks a few out and hits a few, then I'll be more than happy with that. That's definitely, I mean, look, he could win the whole thing. You know, it's who knows who's good at hitting home runs in this sort of situation with a crowd watching, like nobody really does this even in practice, like, yeah, you can take batting practice and hit home runs, but not usually in front of 50,000 people plus a bunch of TV cameras and all that stuff. So I don't know. He could win the whole thing, but yeah, my, my goal right now is that he hits a couple doesn't, I think Jason Bay, like 15 years ago, didn't hit any. And that was super embarrassing. Right. Which again, Jason yeah, Bay was kind of a weird, to happen. a weird pick to be in a home run derby, but, um, but yeah, so I just, as long as he hits a couple, that's my goal. I don't know if he'll win. I don't know if he'll get through the first round, but uh, that would make me happy. Eli, do you have like a projection think, or a prediction? Oh, sorry. Yes. I, I was just going to say, definitely... I think like, I was just going to say, I think Jason Kendall uh, also had like a one, maybe like several years ago too, but yeah. Throwback. Yeah. Uh, Jason Kendall still holds the record for the largest pon- uh, pirates contract ever with, 60 million dollars <laughs> i think you've mentioned but, that on this podcast before i think i did it's a good um, it's one of my favorites because it just shows how how much how little they care uh, but yeah i think i think trey reaches double digits in his one round uh i think you know he will he will hit the ball well and that's all i'll say i think it'll be a good show okay. the balls are gonna fly it's course field so 
-hmm. you know, I think that we could throw enter Orioles worst hitter here. Let's go with Domingo Leyba. I think we could throw Domingo Leyba up there and he could probably hit three, four home runs. So, okay. <laughs> and they're it's not course putting, field. It's course field. That's what and happens. And they're not putting the balls in the humidor, so the ball is probably going to fly a little bit. Oh, so. that's going to be so much fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It'll be good. Otani, Otani's in there. Pete Alonso. Oh, yeah. You know, it's a lot of. Uh, yeah, Juan Soto is in there. That's the other one I was trying to think of. It'll be a good time. Yeah. Um. Okay. Uh. The other All Star mention or event to talk about, just real quick, was that the Futures game happened today as we record. And the Orioles had some representation from Adley Rutschman and Marco Diplan. Is that how you say it? Diplan? I think it's Diplan. Diplan. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, and he was kind of an, a surprise inclusion because he uh, is not really a top prospect, but that's cool that he was there. And yeah. I don't know. Just just cool to see the Orioles there. Do you guys have anything to mention? Honestly, not all too much. Pe- people have said that. So Diplon was apparently a starter and he got converted to the bullpen this year and did pretty well. Uh, I don't know. He didn't look very good today. He gave up back-to-back bombs, but you know, he's a, tw- he's a 24 years old. I think he's in triple A. So it's like, you know, he's not a huge prospect. It's cool to see him get some recognition for the good year he's having. And Adley, yeah. of course, we love Adley. Plaster yeah. him everywhere across the MLB. I had seen mention that, you know, the, the MLB tries to make, these the futures game into sort of a this is all the countries that we're popular in and they'll have players mm. from the Dominican from Venezuela whatever and Diplin Dip Diplan Diplan I think it's on on Diplan it was the only guy in the game from Mexico and oh. I'm not sure what other Mexican prospects there are in the game that are like highly rated but that you know Hopefully he's more than that. I mean, he's had a good season in Norfolk, so he's a, he can play a little yeah. bit, and he'll yeah. probably play in the big leagues at some point. But, yeah, that could explain it. Uh, Jesse, anything to mention on the Futures game? <laughs> nope. <laughs> okay. Very good. All right, well, the last thing we're going to talk about today for a topic is going to be a blog that I wrote a couple weeks ago over at Camden Chat that I basically just said that, you know, the Orioles are bad, and it's fine to be bad, but it's not really fine to be this bad is kind of the the thesis of the whole thing. And uh, we kind of have in our outline here a, a too long didn't read of. Elias has been honest about rebuilding, and fans understand that, but there are limits, and this team has largely been unwatchable this season. Um, so that kind of led us to discuss in our group text leading up to this sort of what our thoughts were, and I guess we'll just kind of bring the conversation to the podcast here. So as we end the first half here, the Orioles are really bad once again. They've won one game in July. It's been a rough month. They're now the second worst team in baseball. This is the fourth straight year where the Orioles will be, in all likelihood, one of the five worst teams in baseball. Again, Mike Elias has been really straightforward with sort of what the plan is here, and, and that's fine, but the pitching staff has largely been horrible. The catchers are, I think, the worst unit of catchers in baseball. The second baseman have been the worst second baseman in baseball. Um, so, you know, it doesn't need to be Orioles specific, but maybe what do you guys think sort of the obligation is for a general manager and a a front office that even though a team is openly rebuilding, what sort of obligation do they have to fans, to the sport of baseball, to the league, to still put a watchable, legitimately uh, major league quality product on the team? And, And Eli, I'll go to you first for your thoughts. It's a really interesting question. And it's a question that was never 
was never explored until really until the Astros were the first ones to tank. Mm -hmm. uh, there were discussions about tanking throughout football, throughout XYZ, but because, you know, MLB prospects were always pretty un unreliable as far as you can't always count on them to turn out. There was never really, well, MLB didn't really respect a full rebuild and tanking for a while as a method of generating a good team. That just never really was a thing in baseball. So this is a pretty new phenomenon as a whole. And I think it's a really interesting question because, you know, the easy argument to make from the Orioles standpoint is that in doing this, we are refining our product for future years. You know, we have to maybe pull something back from what we're outputting right now in order to create the best version of ourselves for years to come, to put out the best product, to put out the most entertainment for years to come. Um, that being said, as a consumer of that entertainment, it, you know, it's, it's not like disrespect or anything, but there's a complete lack of attention to the current product that they're putting out there. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. We threw this out on Twitter. It sparked a whole conversation. Uh, <laughs> we had a Twitter, Twitter troll coming at us, and that's a new phenomenon for us. So I engaged him more than I should have. But, you know, I threw something up, and Tyler kept, we were both tweeting from the account at that point. <laughs> Tyler kept throwing out, we're not talking about going out and signing, you know, somebody to a nine figure deal, $170 million over eight years, anything like that. That's not what this is about. This is about signing one pitcher for a couple million dollars who can come in, eat up 140 innings of, you know, 4.1 ERA ball. Just something that can just stabilize the product so that we aren't in a position where four days out of the week we're losing by six, seven runs. Right. And that, I, I do feel like that's not too much to expect. You can put that out there you can make this product in its current version entertaining and you can still have the understanding that we'll be a bottom five team in the league and we're going to lose a bunch of games and we will rebuild. We will get good prospects. We will rebuild. We're investing more heavily here. We're not investing in the major league team. We're not going to run up $170 million on the payroll. And that is what it is. And I think that's fine. And you look at the list of guys who signed as free agents, you know, Rich Hill with Tampa Bay, Carlos Rodon, who threw the no hitter. There are plenty, plenty of quality arms out there who could have had a pretty substantial impact on us. And, you know, instead we signed Matt Harvey and we see where that's gotten us. Mm -hmm. it, you know, we signed Wade LeBlanc twice. It, it, it's, it's just kind of nonsensical. And then from the baseball standpoint, I look at this and I say, flopping Rio Ruiz over to second base to avoid going and signing someone else what does that do as a young pitcher to really weaken your defense up the middle to that extent? You know, if we are trying to bring up guys like Dean Kramer, Keegan Aiken, Alex Wells, Zach Lowther, you know, if we're trying to bring these guys up and really give them a stable situation to step into, A, you need to allow them to fail and have a bullpen rested behind them that can pick up the slack for them a little bit and allow them to fail a little bit. You need, to, you need to allow them to have a ball hit hard up the middle and have their shortstop or their second baseman make a nice play. 
I mean, Galvis was a solid pickup. He's a good defender. Uh-huh. But it, it's just kind of, I, f- from the standpoint of developing players still, I still think that there's an argument to be made that just an investment of like six, seven million dollars could totally change the outlook of this team on the field. And I think it could build up our young players by giving them a solid foundation of a team to step into rather than, you know, trying to develop yourself going out there, giving up seven runs and, you know, losing, what, what is it? It's July 11th. We've, we've won one game in July. <laughs> and, you know, just the mindset that a player has to go through well, the mindset that a player has to have in order to really develop themselves to their fullest extent, I think, needs to be kind of self-absorbed and they need to be able to look within themselves rather. Well, and I think that being dejected all the time because we're not winning, just being depressed by being on such an outright terrible team and never being able to compete in a game, I, I think that influences player development. And I think it influences it in a substantial way. And so, you know, I think the argument you were making, Tyler, is totally honest. I, I, I think it's totally correct. I think that it's something that people don't talk about because there's an inherent conflict in saying that the MLB team should be better and our draft picks should be better. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the narrative around those two things have been that it's a seesaw. You get one or the other. You get a good MLB team or you get good draft picks. And the argument that six, seven million dollars is in any way, shape, or form going to really impact the draft pick that we have at the end of the year, the record that we have at the end of the year, I think is a fallacy. You know, I think it's something that is partially concocted by Michael Elias, by our PR, by you know the relation, the relations side of the Orioles organization that's putting forth this message that we have to be bad right now mm-hmm. in order to save a couple million dollars a year. You know, I, I, I think that's a lot of people were saying we're dumping money into the Dominican facility and all that facility costs a couple million dollars, you know, like relative to the Orioles payroll, like five years ago, we're, we're saving on the order of $90 million or so, you know, mm-hmm. our payroll was up over 150. $90 million is not going into the Dominican facility. $90 million is not going into you know, like the technology into, you know, pitch analysis, whatever it, it, that's not where it's going. It's being saved right now. And, you know, maybe it's $60 million of that. Maybe it's whatever that's being saved, but the argument that we have no money to spend because we're investing so heavily in these other things, I think is an absolute lie. And so, yeah, to, to, to be a consumer of a product and have some loyalty to that product and have that product not show that same loyalty to you, you know, in the, by, by means of showing you that they are interested in giving you a good product. That's a little depressing. And, you know, obviously I'm not going to stop watching the Orioles or anything. This is the way that the business works in the MLB. I mean, I, I obviously give them a lot of my attention coming and doing a weekly podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, it's a, it's an interesting, interesting question. And I think that I think that organizations and general managers have not been forced to face this question yet because the rebuild is still kind of a relatively new concept. Right. And, and you know, what, what we kind of got told a lot on Twitter and stuff, which is something that we're well aware of what I, what I, the argument I can't take is when somebody goes, well, you just don't understand 
what the rebuild is. Like, this is what it is. It is being bad for a really long time. And we knew what Elias was going to do and yada, yada, yada. And yeah, of course, we all understand what the rebuild is. Every fan, every Orioles fan that somewhat pays attention is fully aware of what the plan was going to be. We saw what happened in Houston. We knew it was a complete teardown. And we understood that the Orioles had some work to do in Latin America. They had some uh, um, overhaul to do in terms of player development and player analysis and player recruitment and all of that stuff. And that all costs money and that all takes time. And sure, that means the rebuild is going to be a little longer than the Astros are going to be. But at the same time, you're still asking fans to pay a premium for additional TV packages that don't come with your regular cable. You're still asking, um, I'm sorry, you're asking fans to pay the same for tickets. It's not like ticket prices are less now because the Orioles are bad. It's not like food prices are less now because the Orioles are bad. I'm totally fine with the Orioles losing 100 games, 95 games, and getting a top five draft pick. That's cool. And I even appreciate some of the pickups that Michael Elias did in the offseason. I appreciate the Freddie Galvis move. I think that made a bunch of sense. It made sense to sell high on Jose Iglesias because we knew Jose Iglesias was not the type of hitter he showed to be last year. And you got a couple prospects out of that. That's great. I think the Michael Franco pick, while it has not worked out, made some sense on paper to go get a proven American League third baseman who could not field but probably was going to hit a little bit. He hasn't hit. That sucks. But they did absolutely nothing to reinforce the pitching staff. They went and got Matt Harvey, Felix Hernandez, who was over the hill, Wade LeBlanc. I mean, like, come on. And then you're going to tell me it's to give the young guys chances at the big league level. Zach Lothar has been on the Norfolk shuttle half the year. Alex Wells has been up and down twice. Dean Kramer looks like he's broken. Like, I mean, it's just not really acceptable. And yes, some of the poor play has been bad luck. Anthony Santander has struggled and been hurt. Austin Hayes has been hurt. Um, Mancini struggled to start the year. Ryan Mountcastle struggled to start the year. So not all of this is, you know, on Michael Elias's shoulders. Like the players need to play well. But at the same time, he's gotten Cedric Mullins playing at an MVP level, which there's no way the Orioles were planning on that happening. And John Means pitched like a Cy Young for the two months he was healthy. And the one month he's been out or one month plus, the rotation has fallen apart. They needed to do more to address some of these things to make the Orioles a competitive team. How they're not the worst team in baseball is, is shocking. And it's an indictment on what the diamondbacks are doing, but the Orioles, it, it, they, they were supposed to be the worst team in baseball this year and they're not, but they might end up being, and it's just, it's tough to watch. Um, I I just want to throw out real quick. You said a competitive team. I don't want people to latch onto that. What we mean by competitive team is a, right. a team that can compete in a given game in the major leagues. You, you know, we're not talking about competing for the division or anything. Like right, right, that. right. Yeah. Well, yeah, because like, and I kind of, you know, what I want to do sometimes is just take like a screenshot of like a week or two for the Orioles sometimes, because you can go back and be like, uh, oh, they lost 10 to one, seven to two, eight to one. Like those are some weeks where the Orioles just get blown out five times in a week. I mean, when they played the Astros in Camden Yards and then the Blue Jays in Buffalo, they lost to the Astros 2 to 10, they lost to the Astros 13 to nothing, they lost to the Blue, Blue Jays 9 nothing, they lost to the Blue Jays 4 to 12. Like it, it's fine for that to happen on occasion. It happens to the Orioles three or four times a week and that's not that's not okay in my opinion. Even if you're losing 100 games, it's not okay to get blown off the field half the time. Uh, Jesse, do you have any thoughts here? 
Yeah, I, I mean, exactly in line with what both of you are saying. The biggest crime of the Orioles organization, of course, is like you're talking about the starting rotation, right? Um, I, I mean, if you look at the starting lineup, like that's coming into the year, that's I'm okay with that starting right. lineup. That's an acceptable starting lineup. The bullpen was an acceptable bullpen, right? The starting pitching was an absolute disaster. We all knew it was going to be a disaster. And the Orioles didn't try, like we're saying, Hernandez, LeBlanc, and Harvey. None of those signings costed the Orioles more than a million dollars. Not one of them. And the reluctance to spend even just a couple million. I mean, Eli mentioned some names. There was also Ivan Nova that signed for a million and a half. Uh, Jose Quintana, he was a little pricier. He went for eight. Um, but even even signing a starting pitcher like Quintana for $8 million to sort of stabilize the rotation, he might have been tough to recruit here because he might have tried to go to a competitive team, but uh, especially with him being a, a very decent starting pitcher. Um, but, you know, their, uh, Shoemaker was another who signed for a couple million dollars. The Orioles could have invested exactly like you're saying, just six or eight million dollars just to sort of stabilize the rotation a little bit. And it would have had tremendous effects on the other starting pitchers that we were kind of relying on the younger guys, whether it be Kramer, whether we were hoping Aiken would, you know, reemerge as a starter, um, whatever the situation was. Um, and the bullpen wouldn't be so depleted. I mean, we came into the season with a decent bullpen and I mean, they are totally, they're pitching without arms at this point in the year because they are so overworked and so overused. And the thing for me also is yes, I think of course the organization has a responsibility to fans, but the organization also has a reasonable responsibility to try to keep these players safe. And with the starting rotation being as dismal and as poor as it has been and expecting the, the bullpen, I mean, poor Adam Plutko, who has <laughs> it feels like pitches two and a third innings to three innings every other day, it feels like, right? I mean, poor him. I mean... Um, it, we just it, saw Lakins go down with an injury. Lakins, right. had a, I, Lakins had an elbow injury. Yeah, and he was getting used a lot. The thing, yeah, the the thing that I'm very worried about is these players' health and safety. And it seems like this Orioles, uh, if they cared more about the or the the health and safety of of the starting rotation of the bullpen, um, they would make they would put some more investment into improving the starting rotation, making it not even good, but like not as pathetic as it's been. You know, even if the starting pitcher gives up five runs, at least get a guy who can throw five or six innings most days. Right. We, I mean, we have guys we're hoping can make it through four at this point. I mean, it really, I don't think in my entire lifetime, I don't feel like we've had a rotation this bad where we are really just hoping for four innings out of a given starting pitcher. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're, we've gotten to that point and the, I mean, the bullpen has thrown uh, so, so, so many innings and us shuffling around uh, can't last forever. And of course, now we're promoting guys 
-hmm. right? This is how you can tell we're in such a horrible position. We're promoting guys that aren't major leaguers that don't deserve to be major leaguers that come up, make a major league start like Janice did and get DFA the day after, right? We're literally doing, making these types of moves just to fill innings, right? And I think that is just when you're in such a perilous position with the starting rotation where, you know, if, if you had to just rely on these guys and then maybe one or two others for an injury here or there, we would never be able to cover the amount of innings that are supposed to go through the end of the season. We would never be able to do that, right? The Our pitchers would not last. Our pitchers would be hurt. Uh, you know, it would never work. We'd, we would require our starting pitchers to throw 150 pitches through four and a third and give up eight runs and just ha- have them suffer out there. That's what would be required for us to make it through the season. The fact that we can't even reliably have a starting rotation that maybe we have six or seven guys that we know can reasonably throw 120, 140 innings, right? get us through the season, maybe 160 if we're lucky, right, with some of them. The Alex Cobbs types, right? I mean, we traded him away, right? I mean, there were so many things that could have been done to kind of secure the starting rotation. And the Orioles just didn't want to invest anything in it. And like Eli said, it has really negative effects for the morale of the team. It has negative effects for the younger guys that we want to see do well coming up. It damages the prospects. It has trickle effects down to the minor leagues, right? Um, When our, our major league team is so poor. So yeah, I mean, in how everything was constructed, I mean, yes, Rio Ruiz going to second base was more or less a, a minor travesty um, as well. Um, I, I mean, no, it really was because the Orioles just were like, well, we don't care. We don't want to make an effort. We're just going to take this, you know, this guy who plays third routinely and we're just going to put him at second and, you know, do the best we can. I mean, it, you can do that, but I, I don't think it's really a responsible thing to do. It's not a major league second baseman or anything resembling it. Um, not only offensively, but defensively. Right. So, I mean, I, I just think that um, so much could have been done with such a little investment signings like Freddie Galvis is a perfect signing for where the Orioles are at in, in the, in their, um, in their process. Right. Um, and the fact that none of that was ever done with the starting rotation is very disappointing. And it seems like they did it with Galvis because they understood, okay, it's important to have a steady, a steady shortstop of the middle who can play behind. It seems like a lot of that thinking that calculation was there when they signed Galvis, but then they refused to do it with anybody in the rotation. It, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I want to make a couple things clear here. And I think I think I speak for you guys, but definitely tell me if I'm wrong. We're still on board with the rebuild in general. Like, I think the rebuild is headed in the correct direction. Michael Elias needed to come in and, you know, whether it was his decision or the or the ownership decided it was finally time and it coincided with Elias coming on, they needed to improve their standing in Latin America. They've done that. They needed to probably alter their player development because even though the Orioles had that successful run with Buck Showalter, 
there were obviously some issues where there wasn't enough talent coming in behind those guys to make them anything better than the 47 win team they were in 2018. Like there were clearly organizational issues that needed to be fixed. And I think Mike Elias is doing a good job, but like, you know, the major league team needs a little bit more reinforcement than what we've, we've seen the last couple of years. It's fine to be bad. It's fine to be top five picks bad. It's not fine to like, and I've heard this a bunch is, you know, some people you get off work, you get dinner done or whatever. And then as soon as you turn the game on, it's maybe the second inning and they're down five, nothing already. And it's like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to find something else to watch tonight. Like that's not a lot of fun. I think things are going well in general, but just a little bit more. And I'm not, I'm not sure he planned for it to be this way, but it's been this bad and there needed to be a little bit more of a backup plan versus what you just said. Now, Jess, we're like, we're seeing guys like Connor Wade, is coming up for a day. Sean Anderson was not good when he made his one inning appearance. Like Max Scaroller, that whole thing for for two or three months was a disaster. Like there needed to be more of a plan than this. And, you know, maybe he's learned from this. Hopefully next year is a little different. Although next year, I think you probably start to see the big time prospects make their way up here eventually. And that'll that'll paper over a lot of the issues. What's frustrating, though, Tyler, I mean, just to push back a little bit on what you said, Uh what's frustrating? I mean, we knew the rotation was going to be this bad and Uh he should have known it was going to be this bad. Okay, yeah. You said maybe he didn't plan for it to be like this. This should have been the expectation looking at this rotation. I mean, John Means uh, overperformed. A little bit. I mean, what he performed was not like unreasonable, but he overperformed a little bit uh-huh. to ex- and I feel like Kramer and uh, Lopez are maybe underperforming a little bit, but they're not far off the mark and their underperformances are completely within the range of what may ha- is reasonable to expect right from from those starting pitchers. Um, so you know, I mean, relying on uh, Harvey, relying on—I mean, Harvey was our number two starting pitcher entering the season. <laughs> and, I mean, and he was good for totally, a month. He was good for a month. Yeah, right, right. But he, like, when he was surprisingly good that month, he mm-hmm. overperformed based upon expectations, right? If he hadn't done that, if he was like the Harvey, we hadn't, you know, no. I mean, so that's where my thing is, like he had to know that the starting rotation was going to be a disaster and they made no effort to try to address it. Yeah. Kind of another note referring to the beginning of the season, we all kind of had expectations of what the rotation was going to look like. You know, we said that John means was going to lead it off. Kramer and Aiken were going to be there. And, and so kind of where I take issue is that, you know, clearly early in spring training, it became apparent that Aiken and Kramer were not like, were not cut out in the moment. Or I think it was just Aiken that got sent down, but mm-hmm. Kramer was struggling through spring training. And at that point, there are still free agents available. There are still opportunities to, you know, just do one little thing to just stabilize. And I get, I, I guess that's the biggest thing to me is. it's about stability in your team. It's about just not complete and total despair. And I don't think, yeah, it's really not too much to ask. It's a very, very minimal investment that takes you from where we are now 
you know, like seesawing with the Diamondbacks for who's going to be worst in the league. And it, it's, yeah, a minimal investment to take you from that to also the second worst team in the league, but just like able to get through a baseball game. I mean, yeah, you can tell that Hyde is just like totally yeah. broken as a human being. <laughs> uh, he gave, yeah, he gave an interview and was asked what he thought the biggest takeaway from the first half was. And he said, just how far away we really are with the pitching or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, and what that means is just how far away we are from being a major league baseball club. I mean, <laughs> you know, we literally cannot even be called that right now. There are, I mean, you know, the Dodgers, like six through 10 starters would immediately slot in in place of our two through six, you know, it's crazy. Right. I mean, yeah, the Orioles are currently on pace for uh, 51 wins, which I mean, look, like I get it. I get where we're at. Um, But I, you know, I was going back and I was looking at sort of where the Astros were. And in 2011, they were 56 and 106. And that's the year that the GM got fired and they brought in uh, the new guy. What's what was his name? Uh, Lunhow. Yeah. And then in 2012, they were 51 and 111. So they took a step backwards. They had the fire sale. And then in uh, in 2013, they were I'm sorry, 2012, they were 55 and 107. Then 2013, they were 51 and 111. So two bad seasons in a row. And then in 2014, they were 70 and 92. And then they progressed to 80 plus wins, 80 plus wins, 100 wins, World Series, yada, yada, yada. Like, we're behind that. We're behind that. We're not making pace with that. We've now gone backwards from the Orioles when they took over, when Elias took over, they were a 47 win team. They got up to what, like 50, 54. Then last year, they won 25 games in that weird season. Now they're on pace for 51. Like, I want to start seeing like the 60 something, the 70 wins. Like you've got your top five picks four years in a row. Like let's start seeing some fun baseball again. Um, So next year, that's kind of, that's what, for me, that's what the expectation is going to be. Like they're going to get another top five pick. You will now have what five top five picks or four top five picks, whatever. Like let's start seeing some progress. That's kind of where I'm at. I I like Michael. I think it's going well, but like you do need to start to climb up the win totals a little bit. The, the thing I would say, too, just to add to all of this is, of course, it makes sense why the worst teams in Major League Baseball get the, the top draft picks. Uh, the reason being for parity in Major League Baseball um, to try to create stability and to not let the good teams get really, really good with the bad teams uh, getting really, really continuing to be really, really bad. Um, but with this uh, method of tanking and what maybe uh, maybe major league baseball starts to reevaluate how draft picks are, are assigned. And um, I I don't know, but I think it is something to consider. Yeah. I mean, the collective bargaining agreement expires after this season. I would imagine that could be involved in those conversations. Yeah. I I don't know either sort of what would make sense, but uh, yeah, I don't think that's an unreasonable thing because it's not fun. It's not fun for like five years and this is sort of becoming a pattern, as Eli said, a recent pattern of teams just know they're going to be really bad for five years. It's, the Pirates are kind of doing a similar thing. Um, yeah, I mean, the Pirates have, will bounce back sooner than the Orioles do just because they've got some exciting guys up already. But, yeah, it's not not an enjoyable product for, you know, a, roughly a fifth of the league every year, pretty much. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, if you guys have different thoughts on that, certainly let us know. It was a cool conversation we had a couple weeks ago, and I think it's still relevant. And given that there's not going to be um, many Orioles games this week with the All-Star break, you know, send us an email, tweet us, DM us on Twitter. Uh, you can email us thewarehousepod at gmail.com or tweet us at thewarehousepod. And we'd love to hear your thoughts. I mean, um, don't worry, Tyler. This conversation is not going anywhere. Okay, no. we might be having this conversation next year too. Let, oh, I'm sure. We'll definitely have it the rest of this season. And I'm sure, like as as free agency develops, there'll be talk of like, oh, the Orioles could have gotten that guy, and you know, it. We'll, we'll see. I'm not again. I'm not expecting the Orioles to go out and get Carlos Correa this off season. <laughs> um, but like, you know, maybe get a pitcher or two that could pitch behind John Means. You know, Twitter really loves the Carlos Correa idea. I think it's a meme, though, at this point. It's like a joke. I don't think they actually yeah. expect them to get Carlos Correa. But, um, I mean, it'd be super fun. I'd love it. It'd be pretty fun. <laughs> I would enjoy it, too. And you got the Mike Elias connection. So, um, right. But I, I, I think it's a meme. But I could be wrong. I'm sure some <laughs> people are serious about it. Um, all right. So the last thing we're going to do before we get out of here is the Oriole of the Week. That's where we give you three facts about a former or current Oriole. And then you let us know who you think it is. You can, you can again, email us or tweet us. Or you can just kind of play alone at home and and know to yourself whether you got it right or not. So last week's Oriole was Jeff Conine. Go back and listen to last week's three facts or two weeks ago's three facts to get the hints there. And this week, the first clue for this person is that they threw five complete games for the 1993 Orioles. This player had 10 career home runs. So he was basically a Shohei Otani, basically. <laughs> I'm not going to gratify that with a response. But the third fact is, is the first and only player to win Rookie of the Year and the Cy Young in the same year. Mm. Uh, the, Jesse, your fact, well, not your fact, but you mentioning Shohei Otani made me think uh, Pat Vileka is kind of like Shohei Otani a mm. little bit. <laughs> He's not allowed to run this year, and he's pitched an inning in two-thirds. That's the Orioles' version of Shohei Otani. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. He has, um, what, what, a tenth of the home runs? <laughs> yeah, he's really been rough at the plate this year, which is a whole other thing. I wouldn't mind if once uh, – an in, a middle infield of Freddie Galvis and Ramon Urias, once Galvis is back, could be kind of fun. I wouldn't mind yeah, that. Speaking um, of which, if we, if we had Otani on our team, we could just get rid of this conversation we've been having about that's the true. Orioles not being fun to watch. You know, Otani would make it fun to watch, and that'd be good enough even if we won the same number of games, you know. But he'd literally be worth, like, five or six wins, though. Like, they'd probably be on pace right. for, like, 55 wins, which would still <laughs> suck, but it'd be a lot more fun. Right, right. So I, definitely. I, I should say real quick uh, – we are an Orioles podcast, but we also all watch baseball. On the topic of Otani, it it we should not do an All Star episode mm. without mentioning that he is the first person ever to get elected to the All Star team as a pitcher and as a uh, you know a position player. Mm -hmm. What we are witnessing with this dude is downright historic. Uh, it is almost pretty difficult to argue that he's not the most single valuable player in the game everybody talks about trout but you have somebody who is hitting six times a week and is one of undoubtedly one of the top five hitters in the game arguably the top hitter in the game right now and then he can also go out there chuck a ball 98 with a wipeout splitter you know give you six innings with 12 punchies it just it is so incredibly difficult to fathom 
that this dude could be simultaneously a, you know, top five hitter in the league and a top 15, 20 pitcher in the league. And we don't even get to see him in the outfield, but he actually has the highest sprint speed on the Angels roster. I mean, Mm -hmm. the dude is just transcendent. He is unexplainable. It's amazing. It's amazing. He steals some bases out there, right? Easily, yeah. I I literally had the thought the other day that, like, if Shohei Otani was actually, like, he pitched, like, I don't know, like a Zach Davies type and then hit, like, I don't know, who's a mediocre hitter out there? Like Ramon Urias. No. <laughs> well, even uh, that though, like if he hit like Ramon Urias and he pitched yeah. like Zach Davies, that would be incredible. You know what I right. mean? Like a guy right. that's right. A, an average pitcher and an average hitter, he still would be, I don't know, like a three or a four win player just because of his decent contributions. He's one of the best at both things. Like right. it's it's insane. So, An MVP actually, and a Cy Young contender. Right. right. Somebody actually brought this up and they mentioned that, you know, it's it's almost unfortunate that the first true two-way player we're seeing is just so unbelievably good at both Mm -hmm. because then any two-way player that comes up no matter how legitimate of an MLB player they are at both is going to just be looked at a little worse you know because oh well I mean he's not Shohei Otani but (laughs) right and, and and it's just this absurd standard you know we have you know if Otani came up and he was just a hitter we'd be like, oh, my God, he has really come into his own this year. This guy could be an all-star every year. This is incredible. Mm-hmm. What what a phenomenal hitter. He's leading the league in home runs. And if he came up as just a pitcher, <laughs> we'd say, my God, like this guy could really develop into a true ace. Right. And at the same time, you know, he's just become both. I, the dude is, I don't know. It's awesome. You need I, to sit back and appreciate. I think Alex Cobb said the other day, like, yeah, I know people talk about him all the time, but like, we should still be talking about him more. Basically, right. <laughs> right. It's, right. it's incredible. It's awesome. Yeah, I, I've seen some people uh, on Twitter, like the MLB is talking about Otani too much. All these accounts are talking about Otani too much. It's like, how do you not? Right. Just how do you not? I mean, the, the, this is like, you go into MLB the show and you like create a player. And, you know, like your stat additions are limited. So you can't actually create someone this good. You know, you could throw some points on, oh, you know, pitching velocity on a four seam velocity. You could throw some points on power, but you can't throw them on both like this. You know, you can't create this play. You can't make him up in a dream. You can't make him up. And it's also like, you know, we need to kind of appreciate we've got him right now because he's had injury issues in the past. He could have injuries again tomorrow. Like, what you're seeing right now is a historic thing that will be talked about for a very long time. I think two-way players will become maybe more common, but will they ever again be the best at both at the same time? Or you know, maybe not the best, but one of the best at both things. I, I don't know if we'll see that again anytime soon, which it's it's really cool. And I have to say too, just in line with this, like the MLB is like really kind of has like a lot of really exciting players that are going to be kind of on display for the first time in uh, this all-star game. Otani really maybe Tatis uh, maybe he was there a couple years ago Mm -hmm. but but then also Vladdy Jr. of course so uh, there are a lot of like really young developing really exciting players right now. So you mentioned you know two of the four guys that we talk about every time we talk about young talent on this Uh, shout out to Ronald Acuna Jr. down for the season with an ACL tear that sucks. That's really sad. It's really sad. 
I meant moment. to mention that to you before the podcast, actually. Yeah, I, I wanted you, to, you just hate yeah. seeing bad things happen to good people, talented people, and like exciting people. You know, yeah. feel bad for them. Right? Yeah, and it also, I mean, that changes the playoff race in the National League by a lot. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, right. the Braves have then not been like, great, but it makes it tougher. The I mean, Mets do the probably Braves trade had Freddie a... Freeman now. Mm-hmm. Does that become a thing? Yeah. Jesse. The Mets probably had a minor celebration after the Acuna thing. Yeah. I'm not going to put that on them and say they were celebrating. Yeah, yeah. But it yeah, definitely right, makes right. things a little easier but, for them. And Kumar oh, Rocker is yeah. going to be up for the playoff push for them. So, oh, boy. Be exciting. <laughs> 98 uh, coming out of the pen. I wouldn't, I mean, I could, it could happen. happen. He's, a, sure. he's a stud college guy. Why couldn't he come up right away? Yeah. Right. Uh, work out of the bullpen. I'd like that. Um, All right. Well, so, like I said, we're not going to have a show the rest of this week because there's not too much action. We'll be back next week. We'll recap the rest of the drafts. We'll talk about hopefully Cedric Mullins doing something awesome at the All-Star game and Trey Mancini winning the home run derby. And then probably talk about a little bit of the action of the Orioles' first series out of um, the All-Star break. They go to Kansas City for three and then to Tampa for three before getting back home um, at the end of July. When Then we'll be talking about trade rumor stuff. All right, uh, let's give people some information for how they can follow us online. Eli, where can people follow you online? Uh, people can follow me on Twitter at Elijah Ginsburg, and I'm just going to leave it at that because that's usually the only one I use. Fair enough. And uh, Jesse, how about you? He, people can feel free to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Juggernaut8678. Very nice. And you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Ty Young and head over to camdenchat.com for some blogs. Also follow the podcast at The Warehouse Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Email us, thewarehousepod at gmail.com. And if you do nothing else, please go and subscribe or follow us on whatever your preferred podcast platform is, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We should be on all of them. If we are not at your spot, uh, send us a message, and we will try to sort that out for you. But all right, guys, I think that's... All we've got was a pretty fun show. So we'll definitely get on out of here. Uh, Until next time, I am Tyler. I'm Jesse. And I'm Eli. And you have been listening to the Warehouse Podcast. Go O's. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.